Welcome to another episode of Rotating Reels. I'm one of your hosts, Taylor May. On the line with me here is Keegan Tran and Hake Showalter. And this week, we're going to talk about one of the most beloved movies of all time, Citizen Kane. Before we get into that, though, what have we been watching? Keegan, what have you been watching this past week? Yeah, I'm pretty lightless this week. Uh, So I'll start off by asking a question to you guys. Um, with the knowledge that in an upcoming review we're going to be doing Kong versus Godzilla, I think that's in mid-March. It's one of the ones that's going straight to HBO in the Universal deal. How do you guys fall on Godzilla? Are we all fans? Yeah. I'd say tentatively yes, depending on the iteration. I really like like Shin Godzilla, but I'm not a big fan of like the most recent American remake. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Definitely. It's I, there's because there's like four major periods of Godzilla movies. There's back to like the original Japanese ones, and you know all the way up to these American releases you're talking about. Huge, huge swath of, of quality in there. And I used to really like these Godzilla movies. Like back in the day, I used to like rent all of the old like um, I think they're like the Toho releases from the DVD store. Like loved them. Um, and I went to back to revisit Mothra versus Godzilla in preparation for Kong versus Godzilla. Um, I think this is, you know, it's probably one of the most beloved characters in the pantheon of monsters or kaiju in, in the whole series, but it is really not a movie that holds up to modern <laughs> at all. And I was excited because, you know, it's, it's similar to, we'll get into this a little bit talking about like Citizen K, but there's certain movies where it's like, you, it's almost going to feel like homework. Like, oh, if I'm going to be a Godzilla fan, I can't not do yeah. versus Godzilla. And you see that it's 90 minutes and you're like, I'm just going to get this over with, right? Like, <laughs> throw it on and, and it'll be over quickly. And it is it is probably one of the longest 90 minutes I've ever had to sit through. It's not a new <laughs> thing that these movies have like weak human storylines. Like, I think that's like kind of a staple of the kaiju genre that there's like some plot elements holding together these humans but it's you're basically waiting for the fight um some good things i can say about it it's i why do we ever stop using miniatures i think like (laughs) the full cg is just a travesty when you can see the amount of quality that could go into the whole rubber suit miniature thing um and you know nowhere is it done better than old like japanese kaiju movies uh the fights are really fun really happy people in rubber suits and it's fun to go back to the that era but it's you know the action is is not enjoyable whatsoever it's 20 minutes of a fight scene at the end of a 90 minute runtime, and it really drags itself out it's kind of quaint it's kind of cute and that you get some references to you know things that are going to come up later but overall does not stand the test of time uh so pretty disappointed by that one uh what did i watch next i watched a pilot episode for a new sci-fi show called alien resident if you guys have heard this, I know everyone here is a big fan of Firefly. I've only seen Serenity. Um, I'm assuming everyone here is a pretty big fan of Alan Tudyk. He paid, played, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, he was in Firefly. He was in Tucker and Dale versus Evil. He was even in Rogue One. Pretty pretty big, like, genre actor. Um, and so he premise of this movie, it's, it's a sci-fi pilot. He lands, he's an alien that lands in, I want to say Kansas, small, small town. Um, and then he kills and absorbs the body of a doctor who's like visiting at his lake cabin. He has to fill in and become the doctor. And it's this whole fish out of water. How do I adjust to being a human? It's a sci-fi show. It's very network television. Um, no one in this show matters at all, except for Alan <laughs> Tudyk. He's, it's a, I mean, he matters enough for everybody else. 
I really, I mean, he's the tentpole that holds the entire show up. There's not much there, but it's it's definitely been like a throw on in the background while you're just you know hanging out or doing short show. So I'd recommend it. I don't know if I'm gonna finish it all the way to the end, but the pilot was enough to keep me going. Um, nice. What else I watch? One other thing. Um, again, I know kind of genre fans here. Last week I said I really really liked um, Twenty Eight Days Later, and I like Danny Boyle's movies. Kind of got thinking about like fast zombies and wanted to go back and watch World War Z. I don't think it's super beloved in like the whole genre. I think it's kind of seen as a little bit more of like a weak entry. But my favorite thing about this movie and the reason that I came back to it and watched it again is I think it has some of the most horrifying depictions of fast animalistic zombies. And I'm I'm sure like it was plastered all over the marketing. But I think it's in it's in Israel or, or Iran. But it's, yeah. there's these scenes in the Middle East where there's just like hordes and thousands and thousands of zombies that literally just pile on top of each other to get over this wall. And just the imagery alone of like how depraved and animalistic the zombies are is it's worth watching for that alone. I mean, Brad Pitt's performance is fine. Again, it's another one of those things where it's like you're just enough plot to keep it moving from set piece to set piece. But, you know, again, fun popcorn movie. I enjoyed my revisit to it. Uh, and then wait, Keegan, real quick. Have you listened to the audiobook for World War Z? No, and that's the thing too, because it's it's the book is structured in vignettes, right? It's really good. I because I watched the movie and I was like, eh, this is okay. And then I yeah. I heard actually back to Firefly, Nathan Fillion is uh, who plays oh, Malcolm so... Reynolds. He's one of the guys, and it's really really cool. I I, okay. I like the audiobook a lot, way more than the movie. Yeah, and. I, uh, I haven't heard the audiobook, but I read the book uh, way back in the day. Like, I was like one of the young boys caught up in the zombie survival guide uh, craze, which was written by the same guy that wrote World War Z. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that, that was kind of like part of the whole thing. Uh, I think so, anyway, actually. Um, but uh, <laughs> maybe I'm Uh-oh. misremembering that. I'm pretty sure Max Brooks wrote both of them, though. But anyway, yeah, the book is like, it's like an interview or like a series of mm. interviews and the the i i would have enjoyed the movie if it didn't have the title just for the reason that the series of interviews was an absolutely brilliant plot device and it would have filmed well in my opinion i don't know i think so too i was kind of disappointed after listening to the audiobook i was like why didn't they use more of this i just think it's a way easier sell if you get brad pitt right you know you have him going country to country i i, I don't agree with it either but you know, yeah. a little bit more of a niche take if you do the whole interview thing yeah, oh, cool. well, no, I'll, I'll check out at least, you know, one of the two, whether I read it or listen to an audiobook. Well, what else did you watch this week? Um, I watched one other thing, but I think we're potentially saving this for next week's review. So I'll hold on to it uh, and I'll pass it over. Hank. Yeah, so I had a kind of shamefully light watch schedule this week. Uh, I, I was just I had a lot of work. I had a lot of after work obligations, so I didn't get a lot in. Um a lot of it was just uh, TV watching. Um, one thing from my TV schedule that I'll call out is uh, anime that I started up. I'd actually seen uh, this anime before years and years ago, but uh, in an effort to get my girlfriend to watch some more anime with me, I, I recommended it. It's called The Disastrous Life of Psyche K, and uh, it's a really cute little anime. Yeah, it's it's about like a, a like a psychic boy. It's kind of a follow up on that psychic theme that I was starting by watching Mob Psycho, but this one's a bit more slice of lifey. Uh, the episodes are divided into a bunch of smaller sub stories, which makes it like a really easy watch. You can kind of dip in and out if uh, you know if you want to like uh, paint or have a conversation while you're watching. Um, so anyway, really good show. Would recommend it. Have seen it before, 
But other than that, didn't get a lot in besides my uh, my staples of, of uh, Bob's Burgers. Um, and, then also, <laughs> and then also, uh, I, I watched a little bit of a new series on Netflix, or I think it's new, but it's called Spycraft, and it's like a series of documentaries where they're interviewing uh, spies and former spies, and that's really good too. Um, though it's kind of like a, it seems kind of like pop documentarianism. Um, anyway, you, you know, like it, it, it seems like they kind of might be grabbing just like the very, the most very interesting bits and kind of like glossing over some like important aspects of spy work. I don't know if, if other people feel that it just feels kind of too fun to be true. Um, that's not a bad thing to be clear. It's just when you're watching it, you're kind of like, really? Is being a spy like this um but anyway that was most of what i watched though i did want to call out i've uh, been seeing some of the movie reviews coming out of sundance and as a big horror fan i was keeping my out my eye out for movies that were you know horror movies especially and this year looks amazing like i am so upset that i can't see any of these movies yet there's a new horror movie uh coming out of japan featuring nick cage and i love nick cage in horror um nick cage exactly um there's like some like kind of avant-garde stuff in there um it looks like there's at least one folk horror piece and you know i'm a big fan of the wicker man I, I'll, I'll i'll go out for any folk horror movie that comes out so I, i'm seeing these reviews and even though i had a light watching week i'm like if i could have seen all of these this week i would have canceled my plans you know like i i would have had a heavy watching week so anyway yeah exactly but so anyway not a super heavy week for me um though i did get uh, my eyes on a few things that i'm hoping will fill my my weekly watches in the future nice and some of those sundance films might make it to the podcast that's what i'm thinking i think either only hope telluride or uh what is it the toronto international film festival hopefully we can get some virtual tickets you guys you know what we're killing it in the viewer streams we're probably big enough to start getting screeners at some point, right? <laughs> How many do we need to start getting free screeners? I've been getting but... emails from the Screen Association Guild, you know, and I just... <laughs> hey, guys, I space. Push Trump out and pushed us into the SAG. They <laughs> well, okay, and then I'll follow... One other thing I want to take you up on is Nick Cage. I just watched Face Off for the first time last week, two weeks ago. Yeah, and it's crazy because I'm a big John Woo. I mean, I really like, you know, John was a great action director and i'd never seen face off it just it was something that i like always overlooked that is a horrific movie it's, <laughs> he's he's a legendary action director for a reason like the flying double shooting and you know he, all of that's great the doves it's all fun but some of the things that are just kind of overlooked and wrapped up by the end are absolutely horrific and i think on par with like some of the horror movies that we've watched recently uh, it was that bad i haven't seen it upsetting. since i was a kid Maybe we'll review it. It's Yeah, no, we should actually review it because I, I agree that there's a lot of stuff they kind of gloss over in that movie that if you think about it for more than two <laughs> seconds, it's utterly horrific. But it is also such an enjoyable experience to watch when you like turn your brain off for a second. Just watching Nick Cage be John Travolta and John yeah. Travolta be Nick Cage. Like, <laughs> you know, if, if, like, if you're like me, then you like dipping into the horror of it. But even if you don't like dipping into the horror of it, you know, just try and like watch it with your brain shut off for a minute because it's we'll, we'll review it. I think Keegan <laughs> and I will have both some fun things to say about it. I'd like to watch it again, too. So I'd be into that. Taylor, too. I don't mean to exclude you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hank, anything else you watched this week? Uh, no, no, nothing on top of what I was just saying. Okay, cool. Well, I watched uh, finished season two of Shit's Creek. The finale is good. That's when it starts to get a little more serious. When it's not just all laughs, there's actually some real stuff going on, and it, it worked. So like that a lot. Um, I also watched a great horror comedy movie, also starring um, Wash from Firefly. Alan, uh, how do you say his last name? Tudyk? I think it's Tudyk, yeah. All right. Well, Alan Tudyk, he's, it was in a movie called Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. So good. So good. I never heard of it. Modern classic, yeah. It's hilarious. It, I, you know, when you realize you read the the script that it's gonna be this, these two rednecks get confused for redneck serial killers. Um, I was like, eh, it might not be good. But I, because of Alan Tudyk, I was like, all right, I'm gonna watch it, and it was perfect. It was so good, exactly what I wanted. And they actually, the main villain, they actually give him a little bit of a plot. Right, the end, mm-hmm. we learn kind of his backstory, and, what, and I was, I was like, I didn't need this, I didn't expect this, but I'm really happy about it. And then uh, the last thing I watched was Germinal. Um, so that's a, it's a French film. Um, it's a film adaptation of um, Emile Zola's uh, famous book, Germinal, the same name. It's about um, some coal miners striking in the 1860s. Um, and Zola actually went and did a ton of research for it because he wrote it in, I think, the 1880s, I think, maybe 90s. Anyway, but he went to these coal regions in France and interviewed and went down in the mines that looked pretty much the same. Um, so really, really interesting movie. Um, the the books, he did this pretty amazing um, series of books. I think there's like 20 of them, 20 novels, all following the same sort of families. And so um, you, you see a little bit of that in this movie, but it, I think it stands alone and um, really depressing, really interesting to see um, all the political things there that are incredibly different from our politics today, but also sometimes similar. So that, that's what I watched, a whole range of serious and, and not so serious stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Tucker and Dale is on Netflix. Where did you watch the French movie? Um, I think it was Amazon. Pretty sure. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah, that was actually on. I, oh, go ahead, Hank. Oh, I was just gonna say I might I might have to check that out. You know, uh, bleak and depressing is kind of uh, something I'm into, and I like French films. So yeah, sprinkle on some European depression. It's just, it's just you know. The yeah, it's got a unique flavor. It tastes <laughs> different from American. <laughs> it's cloudier. <laughs> There's more nudity. You know, it's just. It's got more yeah. nicotine in it. You know? uh, <laughs> uh, okay, are we ready to move on to Citizen Kane? We covered everything. Yeah. Well, I was say we're going to do a, a, a non-spoiler section. So if you're one of the people like us up until this week that hadn't seen Citizen Kane, we're not going to ruin anything for you. And then we'll move on to a spoiler section. But also, you know, let's let's move quickly through this. You guys have had 80 years. It's <laughs> <laughs> If not now, when were you ever going to watch it, right? Well, it's weird because I, I kind of been when I've been thinking about this movie and what I want to talk about today on the podcast, I kind of thought of it in two ways. Right. One is the movie is a historical artifact. It's almost like a period piece. Um, but obviously when they made it, it wasn't that it was a very real thing that was still happening. So I, I want to look at it. One is sort of like where this movie is in the pantheon of movies, um, how it contributed to, to, um, cinematography and everything else. And then also just as the viewing experience, like, does it hold up? Is it enjoyable to watch? And I think that we can maybe do more justice to the movie if we like split it up in those two ways. Um, so 
I want to turn it over to you guys and ask, what is your, what was your first impression when you, when the, you, the last scene happened, we, we got kind of a little bit of a reveal at the very end there. What were you thinking when the move, when the credits were rolling? What do you want, do we want to do general thoughts first before mm-hmm. jumping into spoilers? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do general thoughts. Just overall what you thought of it. Taylor, why don't you kick us off? You recommended the movie. Ah, uh, well, I, okay. So I kind of, I kind of think of the movie, like the great Gatsby in that it's this famous, famous uh, product of art um, that everybody had to, you know, everybody had to read Greg Gatsby in school. And uh, I never quite got it. I actually like Fitzgerald. I like some of his um, other works. And I just, I don't, I didn't really see the appeal in The Great Gatsby, like, you know, the whole green light at the end of the pier and we're, you know, wondering what that is. I just never cared. I don't really care about real character development heavy pieces real character explorations and that's that's kind of how i felt about this movie honestly yeah yeah this is a perfect point for me to jump in go ahead Um, so taylor like you um though i think for different reasons i'm not a big fan of like super character heavy pieces in a general sense like i i'm not saying that i never like a character heavy piece but if that's the only thing carrying a piece of literature or a movie the the appeal is often not there for me you know i need some style i need some pizzazz taylor i think you might need a bit more context rather than style or pizzazz though i could be wrong there um no no, i think you're right i I think you're right like the the clothing did a lot for me in citizen kate that was that was one of my favorite parts of the movie was the clothing Mm -hmm. so yeah but so for that reason i'm also not a huge fan of the great gatsby um and I'm not sure if I'm a huge fan of Citizen Kane. Like, that's, like, my first, like, general feedback piece. I'm not sure if I'm a huge fan. But you'll notice I'm not saying I'm not a huge fan. Because while watching the movie, the first thing that struck me was how kind of comfortable and familiar it was to watch. And not in, like, a, oh, this is playing it too safe way. But oftentimes when I'm watching old films, like, I kind of don't understand exactly what's going on with the movie Mm. like you know like they 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 build the sets differently they build the shots differently they build their dialogue differently like it like it feels like something really alien and citizen kane for me felt surprisingly easy to watch like i watched it and i'm like okay they're doing kind of natural dialogue with people walking over them they're doing kind of like this back and forth chronological thing throughout the movie like i've gotten used to that in modern film so i was actually I'm not sure if I super enjoyed it, but I was at least able to like appreciate it like as a movie and not just as a historical artifact while watching it, which actually kind of got at some points in my book. Cause sometimes, you know, you watch a really old movie that's in black and white and you're like, Ooh, am I watching this because I want to see it? Or am I watching this? Cause someone told me I have to. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. 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 I, <clears throat> I, um, I tried to not let that get in the way, right? So I tried to watch it just for its own sake, and I did exactly what you did. I didn't want to give it all this gravitas, um, and I I thought it was good. I didn't think it was a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's just not one that I had a lot of fun watching. It, it, it wasn't not that it wasn't exciting or anything. I just really didn't care too much about Kane. Like, I, I, it just wasn't that interesting to me, his relationships, his motivation, which is seemingly the whole point of the movie is why is he doing the things he's doing? What's the meaning behind everything? I, that's what the whole movie is based around, and I just didn't really care. So it, it, it you know, kind of kind of was a little snooze fest for me. But Keegan, what would you think? Sounds like you liked it. 
Oh my goodness, this is this is insanity to me. I think I'm like, I, we're we're doomed to be on opposing ends because last week I really, <clears throat> I think I was the coldest for surely on White Tiger, and I was shocked. And I think you know it's impossible to divorce the idea of watching this classic golden era Hollywood movie from you know how much buzz has been drummed up about it. You just said 80 years to sit and marinate and yeah. you know impact other movies and right like there's so much of this even things in like genre films where you have like you know, you have, what is the, what is his place called? Uh, Xanadu. Like, right. Like even that, like when you start out showing Xanadu and it's in black and white, I was even thinking like, oh my God, this reminds me of universal monster movies. Like the impacts of every single shot could be traced forward into the countless movies, right? The impact that this movie has had is absolutely ridiculous. And I think knowing that and hearing other people talk about it for my entire life is really put me off from watching it and has always really intimidated me. I think this is something we were talking about in the pre-show is that, you know, you, there's so much weight in this movie and there's so much writing on it. You, you don't want to not enjoy it, right? Like you consider, we all probably consider ourselves cinephiles. You don't want to be that person that you know, has a hot take of not liking Citizen Kane. And you also, you know, to a certain point, you don't want to just sit there and be the one who just gushes over it because it's, you know, how much can you really add to the conversation of this 80-year-old acclaimed movie? But then when I talk myself in circles, I loved it. I agree with Hank from the beginning, like... You know, you have the newspaper reels and you have the early scenes of, of what happens to Kane and, you know, going through his life really quickly. I was really, really freaked out. And I was like, I don't understand it. I Hold on, slow down. You know, we're, I'm having to like pause it and read through the newspaper, like listings and the subtitles and stuff like that. But it really quickly slows down and it really quickly kind of compares itself to modern movies. And I think it, it follows a pace that not a lot of other movies in that era did. Um, yeah. And so just to make a comparison, like when I was younger, I really, really liked Hitchcock and we did a lot of like film studies on, on Hitchcock movies. Um, and I don't really think the psycho is his best movie at all. And I think that's usually the place where people are advised to start with Hitchcock work because it is the most influential. And I think, you know, it's, it's an incredibly impactful movie. I do enjoy it and I've watched it many times subsequently, but I think it's a movie that has this weird structure and it's an experimental movie in that way of, you know, we have this plot point an hour in and everything changes from there on out. And obviously you can see the tracks of that following through similar to like you can and Kane, but the reality is that it's, it's not the most watchable movie. And I think something like the rear window or like vertigo or the birds is much more digestible by a modern audience. But I was absolutely floored by how easy it was to watch citizen Kane and actually how much I found myself just enjoying it on a level that wasn't as, you know, I didn't have my critic hat on too much. I wasn't being nitpicky. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have to be too heady or too kind of academic or literate, like, you know, thinking like a, like a writer while I was watching it or anything. Like it was just as someone sitting in a theater, I could see really, really being able to just get into it and, and enjoy the ride. And I, the last thing I'll wrap it up with was something that I was not expecting, which is how just funny it was throughout, right? Like there's this dialogue that was so just different from what you would expect of the time where, you know, obviously you have these noir movies of, of the time where people speak very romantically, but you don't really feel comedy like that interwoven into a script at the time. And I think that's something that really sets it apart, right? You have when they're first opening up 
the the newspaper and you have the i think it's bernstein who's who's riding on the back of the pickup truck and he goes shut up what am i paying you to haul or to sass me and mm-hmm. i mean it's just all these hilarious little lines that are just sprinkled in it and but they know when to turn it off right and when to get serious or like so, the breakfast that each breakfast keeps getting more and know, more like depressed and yeah and, yep and his wife is you know progressively wearing more and more clothing and crankier and crankier with him and he's sitting and you know more involved in the newspaper I, it was it's such a modern movie that you could you could tell me this was a movie made in 1980 with a black and white filter and I'd, I'd probably buy it yeah. yeah that's an that's another thing actually um i think for the most part i agree with everything keegan just said i'm just less of like a a, a cinephile and more of a genre fan than him um but uh the the fact is what he says about it being a movie that like you could say it was made in 1980 like I've seen a lot of period pieces made much more recently that are, you know, in color or in black and white, but like the costumes look like they look like in Citizen Kane. The, you know, the the, the buildings, the vehicles, they look like they look like in Citizen Kane. And I guess I'd always assumed it was like kind of glammed up until mm-hmm. I saw Citizen Kane and I'm like, "Whoa, this was actually like the style and like they're I I don't know if they're borrowing it from Citizen Kane specifically, but like the thing they're referring to is very much the same thing being portrayed in Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of impressive that, like, you know, they they created this aesthetic back then, around the time Citizen Kane was being made in film. And that's still a visual that we're getting today in modern films trying to depict the era. Like, we're not having, like, a necessarily, like, a much grittier take on it all that often. Um I, well, actually, that's that's me... something that I thought Citizen Kane did really well from, you know, a, a wardrobe perspective, not to harp on this relatively minor part of the movie. But a lot of times period pieces now, they, uh, you know, like Boardwalk Empire, something like that. Right. You'll get a lot of really cool suits, um, which, which, you know, I like. Um, but the the workwear or the more casual clothes, they don't look they don't look right. They don't look lived in. And that, that's usually a problem with period pieces is that these clothes, no matter how fancy they are, they're just not quite as dirty or, or exactly the way they would have looked. And so Citizen Kane does a great job that obviously it wasn't period clothing. It was just everyday clothing. Um, but it kind of it kind of just shows you how different movies are today in that we have mm-hmm. wardrobes and costumes. And, you know, a lot of those guys, Cary Grant, they wore their own clothes when they were filming movies. So that's like a totally, totally change that has happened. Yeah, no, and I think, so there are certain things that I think, and I was just harping on Godzilla, and I was saying, right, like this transition to full three, three like, you know, animated and everything's, you know, CGI, It's it does a disservice to these movies, and I think that's something that, like, Citizen Kane really puts in the forefront, and the two things that really stuck to me were, oh my god, like, you could have, uh, you know, I'm apparently really stupid in these examples but you could have told me that they filmed this movie like boyhood over like 35 years and they waited for the actors to actually age like how much money did netflix give scorsese to make the irishman yeah to do all this crazy like you know ai grafting on his face to age him up and age him down when i wouldn't i was every time they showed kane in a new era or like you know whether he was with his first wife or his second wife or he was younger and you know starting the the inquire like you could instantly place yourself based off the way his face looked and the way that they had his hair and did they you know they put weight on him or you know made him skinnier like it, it and it's such a like stage thing and i think that's something that is like they they bring up right before the credits that this is like a lot of people's first endeavor to film but Maybe I'm suggesting we hire a bunch of theater nerds to, to, to you know, take over. But <laughs> And the other thing that really stuck out to me is that 
I think the movie is a confirmation that movies need like maybe one editor, three editors tops. Like the, when you watch a modern movie, it's just such quick takes and it's boom, 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 shot versus shot. We have so much coverage of the actors. And I mean, this movie, like we, what is it? Pieces of a woman. We sat there and gushed over one 20 minute one take, but back in the day, right? Like these movies were two hours of five minute one takes over and over and over. And it's mm-hmm. like the camera's moving with them, you know, they're moving in and out of light. And it's, it's clearly so much more of a, like these people are stage trained and they're making a movie versus we're, we're actors for film primarily. And I, that really stuck out to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and little things too, like uh, the reporter who's, who's, sort of are, um, you know, holding our hand through this journey through Kane's life, who introduces us to every time, every time we, you know, jump around in time, forward or backwards, it's always him as the starting point uh, with whoever he's speaking to that then tells us the story, right? We never see his face the entire movie. Yeah. He's on screen for a huge amount of time and we never see his face. And uh, that's little stuff like that, that, you know, I'm trying to not think of the movie in terms of what it's contributed to cinematography, but it's just so it's hard to overlook some of it because you, you a lot of the cuts to, you know, where you're, you're uh, pulling back through the skylight or you're in the opera house and you start on stage and you work the camera swings all the way back up to Kane sitting in one of the booths. A lot of that stuff, it was so impressive and so different than any other movies from the time period I've watched that it was like, you can't. Like you said, Keegan, you just can't divorce it from the impact it's had because it's been that massive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like a really good way of wrapping all that up for me is like watching the movie was amazing because you can see that impact. You know, like even if you're like a relatively casual fan of cinema, you know, you just see like the blockbusters, like you can kind of see the things that came from Citizen Kane in modern cinema. Yeah, totally. 100%. But if you're watching it as a piece of modern cinema, at least as me, like, I'm just not that interested in the genre. So, like, I wouldn't necessarily say, like, it's, like, one of my favorite movies. But I can't deny that, like, the way it's been made is outstanding in its modernity. Mm-hmm. And it's outstanding in the way it's lasted. So, yeah. I, I think the movie is, is phenomenal. I think it's fantastic. But I'm not sure that I, like, enjoyed it that much. Though, to be clear, that's because of my genre leanings more than any, like, inherent aspect of, of the film being good or bad. Yeah, I think, I think I'm on the same page with you. That, I you know, you're watching it, and it's really impressive how it's impacted everything. And it's not... It, it, I think it does hold up. I think that was one of the questions we had from last week was, will this whole 80-year-old movie hold up? And I think it does, definitely. And maybe that's because modern movies have moved more towards Citizen Kane than towards other movies of its time. Um, but, you know, if, it's, if you're not into really character-heavy movies, it's not going to be the most fun movie in the world to watch. But you should, I, I hate to say it, I think you should probably still watch it. I think it's sort of like The Great Gatsby. You should probably read it. It'll teach you some stuff. It'll learn you good. But Keegan, Keegan thinks you'll enjoy it, though. Oh, absolutely. I don't listen to these guys at all. Watch it immediately. And it's it's not as intimidating as you think, you think it's going to be. But I, I guess I have a question. I'll derail you guys a little bit. We keep talking about Gatsby and mostly right Fitzgerald's his book of it. What do you guys think of the two movies, right? Because there's, there's most recently the Baz Luhrmann movie, which is pure style over substance. It's, yeah. you know, it, it fully embraces modernity. There's <clears throat> hip hop. It's, you know, there's 
people that get to share restrooms that probably didn't back in the movie, right? It, it's fully set in like a 2020 version of, of the 20s. And then there was the older version of the movie, I, I think was made closer to the time of the book being written. I mean, what do you guys think of those as adaptations of the book? I'm just curious. So I'm actually not going to answer that question. Um, <laughs> but I'm going Is to that an option? The point, the point you're making. Yeah, that's, a, that's an option, Taylor. I'm, and I'm going to take it. <laughs> so the thing is, I, I think that that's actually a very valid um, kind of uh, bridge to make between Great Gatsby and and uh, Citizen Kane. But there was another modern movie about not the same time period, but a similar time period that was brought up during my viewing of the movie because I watched it with my girlfriend. And that movie is The Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. Now, they're not very similar. The Wolf of Wall Street is like this big bombastic you know like full of drugs and nudity like mm-hmm. kind of movie but while i was watching it my girlfriend said to me like this kind of reminds me of like the wolf of wall street if it wasn't so sexy or like something along those lines and i thought that for me that kind of captured citizen kane really well because obviously the story's not the same as the wolf of wall street you know, like Kane and uh, whatever Leo's character's name is in Wolf of Wall Street, they're not the same man. But I can kind of see it. You know, it kind of shows him like rising up into wealth. And like, there's kind of like some of the same motions throughout the two films in a very general sense. Yeah. And so for me, like, you know, that's another thing that is like a modern film that it seems almost natural to compare to Citizen Kane in the same way that it seems almost natural to compare The Great Gatsby to Citizen Kane. And um, I think I prefer The Wolf of Wall Street, but that's because I like some debauchery. <laughs> I think that there is like a very solid argument for there to be there for there to be made that like there are some similar large movements in the two films and depending on what you prefer just purely in your taste of subject matter rather than your taste of cinema that citizen kane's kind of a better film um again Mm. i prefer wolf of wall street but i could see you like enjoying the large movements of both films and preferring citizen kane so I, i guess what i'm trying to say is i can see there being much more modern films that someone would actually like that are that are good films you know not terrible like student student films or something <laughs> not at all student films are terrible but you know like like there are films that are that are out they're broadly released people love them and i could see enjoying those films enjoying the genre and still preferring citizen kane to those films just depending on personal taste um, yeah yeah i mean my my, my partner yeah. she loves character movies and uh she kind of joined me for the second half of citizen kane and uh she was like what is this 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 actually seems really good and i think she just never watched it because you have this feeling that it's an, an old snooze fest and for her it was great she thought it was really fascinating and must have been very confusing coming in halfway through this movie and having <laughs> no idea what's going on but uh yeah no i i, th- I think it it's sort of like I, I kind of was comparing it to Casablanca, which is another one of those films that wasn't appreciated in its time that then became considered a classic. And, um, you know, I, I think I liked Casablanca more, but th- I think they're both films that can still hold up for a modern audience. I, I think a modern audience can still enjoy them, whereas you can find some films from the, the 40s or earlier that are just, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> but I guess... 
to try and get back to Keegan's question, because I don't want to leave you totally hanging <laughs> on the Great Gatsby comparison. Um, to be fair, I've only seen the most most recent Great Gatsby movie. I haven't seen any earlier adaptations of the book, okay. and I obviously read the book in high school. And like I said very early in this episode, I like something stylistic. Mm-hmm. You know, I like something that like I look at it and it's like, ooh, it's kind of sexy. Um, and for that reason, I prefer the you know the recent film adaptation of the great gatsby um which i actually believe is much longer and to me at least didn't feel like it yeah um but Mm -hmm. i do believe that that is not due to it being like in a a better film like in terms of how it's been produced how it's been written i think that both films are very high quality i think the great gatsby honestly it's writing as like it's screenplay not the not the source material necessarily is significantly better than the most recent adaptation of the great gatsby mm-hmm. i just as someone that is a fan of style as a fan of like visual grace leaned more towards the great gatsby yeah and i mean i don't want to i don't want to put opinions in your mouth but i get the impression that you're kind of like an auteur guy and right if you if you get baz Luhrmann and you give him leo dicaprio and carrie mulling and just these, these huge sexy big name a-list actors and just give him an enormous budget to go all out with the music right? i mean you're gonna have this spectacle of a movie regardless of you know, if the screenplay has some issues yeah and and that's a totally fair assessment because i'm the sort of person that when i see an artist indulging themselves just you know like really going at it with their film reel or their paintbrush I love that because yeah. like I might not necessarily agree, but I can really relate to the impulse as the hedonism music as someone that writes, yeah. you know, so it, it might be kind of a hot take is what I'm saying. I, I don't expect everyone to agree with me on this, but I really will value just kind of like the visual auteurship mm-hmm. that you see in a movie like great Gatsby more than like the kind of like carefully craftedness of, of citizen Kane. Yeah. Well, so how would you guys feel about if someone wanted to do a remake of Citizen Kane? Oh, if Fincher takes it. Just, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's and it depends on if it falls into the right hands, right? I think there there are certainly directors in our lifetime. I'm thinking like Fincher, Villeneuve. I, I don't know if he's, I think he's a little more on the sci-fi side, but I think there's certainly some actors that would give it the respect that it takes that have proven that they can do remakes and, and rework scripts of, of older things. But I don't know, man. I think it's kind of nice to have just this, this, like you said, this testament to golden age of Hollywood that holds up. And I, you know, I think it's it's singular in that it's it's probably one of the most digestible of its time. And I think, like every subset of films has these movies that it's like here's where to start. Like if you were composing a list to throw up Google, you know, here's how to get into golden age of Hollywood. It's undeniable that this is probably the easiest movie to transition you into into watching those movies. And you brought up Casablanca. It's, you know, an easy top three as well. But I, I think it's I, – I enjoy being in its place of, of not having a remake as is. Yeah, I and I actually didn't like the, the Gatsby remake because of the, the modern music. And I – I think that I think that uh, an impulse is to not like it because it's not you know period correct. But mm-hmm. and, and both of these movies, right? The great the new Great Gatsby and Citizen Kane, even they're they're almost now viewed as period pieces, but they really weren't. They're really talking about modern things. And Citizen Kane, a lot of those modern things that were happening then are still happening today. Like like what's going on with the press and and the debate around fake news and all that kind of stuff is still an issue today as it was back then. But at the same time, 
I think if you're if you're if you're gonna view it as if you can't separate the film from the historical artifact that it is, I just I don't I, I feel like you got to put in the work and we don't we're not gonna get to have hip hop to make it easier to identify with. I think like you gotta realize that if it's if you want it to have this massive impact, you gotta understand it in the context of its time. Yeah. So we're moving to spoilers. Yeah, ready for spoilers? Ready to do it? I am personally very ready for spoilers. I think we've talked about the movie about as generally as we can uh, without repeating ourselves. But you got to do that. Like I was reading the Roger Ebert's review before this and I I loved Roger Ebert. Um, I didn't always agree with him, but I liked his writing style. And if you read his review of Citizen Kane, this dude had a religious experience with this movie. I mean, (laughs) no, he, he said he watched it at least 30 times with groups of people to analyze it shot by shot by shot. And he wow. says the more he gets uh, a handle on its physical manifestation, the more the mysteries of meaning elude him that he feels like he could never grasp what's really going on in this movie. And I was like, man, okay, I'm glad you got all that out of it. Cause that was not what I was living with. <laughs> well, and I, so I guess to follow up on that, like, it, for me, it falls in these two camps of differentiating between like your favorite movies and the best movies ever made. Um, like if I were, if you, you know, gun to my head, you were like top twenty list of movies, like favorite movies. I don't know if this would make the cut. Maybe after a couple rewatches and you know later in life, I have time to like mull over it a little bit more. But if you were like gun to my head, top twenty best movies ever made, I, you know, I think this falls into that camp quite easily. And if you were, you know, if you were gonna have a movie you're gonna watch thirty times, shot by shot. You know, how can you, what else do you do other than this, right? It's, it's a pretty slim pickings. Would you want to watch uh, um, Godzilla vs. Mothra 30 times to analyze it? No, I would rather, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably one of the worst options I've ever heard. <laughs> and in this shot, we can see the man's leg come out from behind the rubber suit. They clearly did not catch that when they were editing it. <laughs> hey, there's fun to be had with it, right? If you want to do the original one, but Godzilla vs. Mothra is... Don't bring it back to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not trying That's to compare That's probably the worst it. way to take it off. I'm not trying to compare <laughs> it. Uh, okay, so spoilers. I think we got to talk about... Kane dies. Yeah, Kane, Kane <laughs> dies, right? That's the first thing that happens. Is that a spoiler? <laughs> no, I'm, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it's actually weird. So I was trying to find non-spoiler information about the movie because it had been so long since I'd seen it last time. And I kind of didn't remember really what it was about. And... There's not good non-spoiler stuff. It's everybody talking about what we're just talking about, which is the context of it and if it holds up, whatever else. Not about, like, here's a brief summary. And I think that's probably because the movie is, um, you know, in, in the narrative style of it, it's a little confusing, especially for movies back then, which is yeah. it's all circular. It's all centered around the person of Kane, not around any particular plot or narrative. So we're constantly jumping around in time. And our, the only thing that really kind of keeps us grounded for, to figure out when we are is exactly what you were saying, Keegan, is the appearance of Orson Welles, who was, I think he was like 25 when they were doing yeah, this. He was, he was our age. He was, he was a young dude. And so... Yeah, can I butt in? Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Just one second. I want to butt in. So the aging throughout the movie of not just Orson Welles... But all of the, you know, really the stars of the production yeah. blew me away. Like, as Taylor's saying, you know, the aging of him allows you to kind of place where yeah. chronologically each scene is happening. 
And I didn't realize that was something that we could do that effectively without CGI or without really advanced prosthetics. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, we didn't have really advanced prosthetics in 1941, and we certainly didn't have any CGI. Yeah. So, like, as any viewer, regardless of your position on the film, whether you think it's quality or you think it's garbage, whether you think it's entertaining or whether you think it's not, you have to hand it to them for the work they did in aging the actors for the various scenes because they convinced me. And I'm, you know, I'm this person, like, looking for the seams in a bald cap. You know, I'm the person, like, looking for, like, where the makeup is obviously makeup. And... Their aging in this movie really blew me away. When it's the order that they do it, too, right? Because, I mean, the, one of the very first scenes is him dying. You don't see much of his face, not enough to make him out. But then you jump into, like, his life as a businessman. And then you have, like, him going overseas and all this stuff. And he's probably in his late 50s at the time. He, that, like, because you that becomes your neutral. And you think that's where you're going to follow him throughout the story. And then you skip back to him being a child. Obviously, it's another actor. But then... <laughs> Can you imagine if they had had tried to make him look all like an eight-year-old kid? That that would be horrific. Just that, you know, Orson Welles sledding in in child makeup with a little cap on. But, you know, after that, you have his relationship with Mr. Thatcher. They're moving through him taking over the Inquirer. And when you first see, it's Mr. Thatcher, he's he's furious at all the things that are coming out of the news organization. He goes down to see Welles there. And it's clearly like a, you know, mid-20s Welles just completely playing himself and it is shocking the, yeah. the just the disconnect between those two characters and it's yeah it's you genuinely would think there was different actors playing him or that there was like you said it's seriously advanced cgi because he's a skinny i mean he's, he's not a big dude he's probably you know i don't know his height but he's he's not chubby at all and then later throughout the movie they pretty believably make him look like a heavier set older man and it's are they padding his suit because you could easily see how it would look unconvincing, but yeah, yeah. thoroughly yeah. amazing. Well, and I think that parallels something really interesting about the movie is that when you read these people that know a lot about film, like Roger Ebert talking about it, the the stuff that they're really getting at, the, the stuff that I think is the reason they have this reverence for this movie is this the the, the character arc of Kane and of him try, like trying to to explain meaning to what he's doing. Right. And that because we're looking at the entire span of his life, I mean, there's like I forget. I think it's in the beginning. I think it's in that newsreel where it says like 1865 to 1941. Like those are all years he covered. And some of them he was those years. Right. So that means you have a 25 year old Orson Welles trying to say something really impactful about man's search for meaning. And, and about, you know, what what drives our, our deepest emotions. And that's that's the core of this movie. So not only did they do all this aging well, is that he apparently, oh, apparently other people think this, not, not me, but Roger Ebert, that he did the same exact thing with describing the meaning, which is the whole push of the movie. Was, the movie tells you a lot, shows you a lot, but it doesn't tell you why. It doesn't give you meaning at all. It's always up, left up for you. That's sort of the central thing of the movie is why is Kane doing any of this stuff? And I think that the fact that he was able to tell, you know, describe that scenario as a young man is like even more credit to Orson Welles, right? That he, at 25, he was able to ask questions that people who were in their 80s would find really compelling and interesting. Yeah. And I, that's the crux of the movie, right? Is they're going <clears throat> to, you know, ex-wife to ex-wife and friend to friend to just see what and everyone supposedly, you know, 
excuse me, the next person he goes to is always going to be the person that you know maybe maybe Jedediah knew him best, and they're just going person to person. And even these these people that are very believably you know, portrayed as older, wiser people just still have no idea what his thought processes were throughout all the actions that he were he was doing throughout the movie. And and when they do try to describe why they thought he did things, it was so vague. It was like love. <laughs> He did everything for love. He wanted to be loved. That was it. Yeah, and he wanted he wanted the people to love him. He you know you want me to love you. You don't love me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know with the now we're we're in spoilers, so I can say it. the The whole point of the movie is that we're trying to figure out what the term rosebud means because that was Kane's dying word, rosebud. And at the very end of the movie. We, uh, the reporter who's supposed, who's been guiding us along, who's supposed to uncover the meaning of this, he doesn't. And he tells everyone, yeah, I didn't figure it out. But you know what? Maybe, maybe it says, maybe it was something he found or maybe something, something he lost. But if we knew, it probably wouldn't explain anything anyway. And then the next shot is us learning what Rosebud, what Rosebud was. And of course, it doesn't explain anything. It, yeah. it, it merely serves as a symbol for how we can't understand this dude. And as, as a symbol for how we can't under, understand the suit, it's burning up. You know, it's, there's a symbol that is the one thing we're trying to seek down that, that could explain him. The symbol doesn't explain him, and the mm. symbol is transitory. You know, the symbol, like, it was present in his childhood. It disappeared for most of his life. It burned up at the end. Like, I don't know. It was just, that was actually one of the more powerful parts of the film for me was that, you know, they're saying we can't explain him. And then even, like, the closest they could get to explaining him could just burn into nothingness at the end of the film. So, you know, while I wasn't necessarily the single most compelled by the whole movie, I don't think I enjoyed it as much as Keegan, I did think it was kind of a powerful kind of final image in the movie to give, like, the last possible explanation both failing and disappearing. Yeah. Yeah. It sort of reminded me of F for Failure, another Orson Welles film, um, which if you guys haven't seen it, it's, it's really good. But it's the same sort of thing where you're not quite sure what the meaning is behind anything. And in that movie, it's obviously front and center. Right. I mean, he he's if you haven't seen the film, he's talking he's talking to art forgers and he's trying to tell a story about some particularly famous forgery or forger or anything. And then the very end of the movie, he goes. I forget exactly, but he said something like, you know, the first half of this movie was truth and the second half was totally fiction. Sorry, we lied to you about everything else. <laughs> and it's like, great, thanks, thanks, Orson. And by this time, he's not wearing a fat suit. He has fully become the older man with <laughs> with more hair than Citizen Here, Kane, yeah. though. So yeah. they didn't get that part right. But um, it's I, I, I kept thinking of F for Failure watching this movie as just so Orson Welles to fuck around with everything. Just just to be this this little uh, this little this this little uh, knuckle in your rib about everything. So you never feel comfortable, you never feel totally content with everything. There's always this wondering, there's always this yearning and, and trying to understand that which can't be understood. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point. Like I think there's kind of this culture now, especially with like how easy it is. Right. Like, I mean, we start up a podcast, how easy it is for people to get into film critique. Everyone's a critic these days. Like, it's so easy for people to have these hot takes about movies. And, you know, as cinema becomes an older medium, you have so much time to sit on these movies and pick them apart and just get, like Roger Ebert did go frame by frame through them. Um, and so I think I've heard two takes on Rosebud or well, I've heard one that sticks out to me and then I have my own personal opinion. And I think one of them is driven kind of by that culture of, of like 
internet hysteria, picking things apart. I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen Room 237, but I think there's this real tendency people have when they fall in love with a movie to just think of the craziest things, right? They see Kubrick in the clouds or <laughs> it's, it's this allegory for how you know, Marilyn Manson was connected to JFK's assassination. All these things that are just clearly objectively not true. But one of the things that kind of rides that line between plausibility or not for me with uh, the Rosebud theory is that, you know, it's symbolic of his childhood and, and of this like kind of innocence that was taken from him and ripped away. And he had this simple life before money was ever a part of it. And that money was not a vessel for him to like have a better life in any way. And if anything, it added more complication and upset to his life. And that was, you know, having it burn up at the end is just symbolic to say that that was, he had that moment before he died of realizing, you know, that snowy day, this is my childhood. That's what was taken away from me. Um, I don't know. I feel like people read into it a lot. I think, personally and i don't know if this is a hot take i just i think rosebud does not matter at all i think it's just you know an easy way to call back to his childhood but more than anything i think it just serves to be a framing device for the whole movie i think we've talked a lot about movies you know over our past three episodes that kind of aren't about anything like specifically porco rosso it's just kind of this mood piece of, of spending time with people this may or may not be the most important time of their lives but we have kind of the opposite here it's this pointed following of one central character throughout his entire life and all the things he's done and i think that like we just need an avenue to get in there and framing it and, and making it circular like you had said taylor of having rosebud kind of helps to set it up and i think you know that's that's the main operative of uh, main operative of having rosebud at the beginning and the end yeah i think it's a red herring i, I think it's exactly yeah. what it is is that we're we're supposed to think that this is going to explain something and then of course at the end it doesn't explain anything and i think that's supposed yeah. to then you know turn the mirror on us to think oh you thought you understood this guy and you really you really don't and you know then that open that just leads right into the expansion of you never really understand anybody that you know your life is a reflection of like in the movie we get all these people that seem to be his friends or business partners or mm -hmm. uh, romantic interests, people that should know him best. And they didn't seem to know the guy at all. And so you're, you're, it's, you're so welcome to then expand that to everybody else. You know, that you never really know anybody. You never really know these true meanings. There's always a thousand stories to explain the same thing. And again, like I, I appreciate the movie did all that really well. And it's really interesting. And I just kind of don't care. I don't know if I don't know if that's because I'm too selfish. Like I don't know why. I kept thinking like, why am I not enjoying this? Like I I appreciate what it's doing. I get I get that it's telling this story in a in a, a really compelling way. And I just kind of don't care about about uh, Citizen Kane. Mm, yeah, I I don't think he's you know outside of the whole sequence of of his childhood. I don't think he's portrayed much as an empathetic or a sympathetic character in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I tend to agree. I I didn't care about him either, and that's why, you know, I, I say that I think it's an amazing movie, but I didn't really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Are you glad you saw it, though, Hank? I mean, I'm glad I saw it, but I wouldn't have if, if it wasn't recommended, you know? Okay. Well, I'm glad I so, did that for you then. I'm glad that I, uh, I I forced you to watch something you didn't have a great time watching. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Feel free to derail me if you want. I don't know if this is where you guys want to take the conversation, but I think watching in the lens of 2021, I think it's impossible to kind of not uh -oh. see some uh -oh. sort of parallels. So I think, so, okay. So long-term listeners have heard me call a lot of movies prescient, right? I talked about the help. I talked about like portrayal of the, the West Indian community in, in small acts. 
Um, but I think this movie is the opposite of prescient. So can you imagine living in a world where a rich capitalist from New York who claims to speak directly to and for the common man and subvert the traditional news cycle runs for office against a well-qualified establishment official? This could never happen in real life, right? A man <laughs> makes promises as an elected official before being officially confirmed, primarily of which is to organize a committee to charge and indict his political opponent. I mean, you know, Wells must have had a crystal ball, right? He predicted so much. Or these are things that have always been happening. That this is not new. And, and you know, the, the history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme is like an old a trite saying that I've, I've heard a million times. I think it's true, though, right? I think that debates around the veracity of, of news and media, because those things are so important, because they influence mm-hmm. society and, and are the way we think so much, people are very concerned about what they're saying. And so, you know, just as much as Hearst, who the movie is, you know, pretty much about, Hearst and Pulitzer, these guys that did this yellow journalism, that when you're hearing talks about fake news today, that's not reinventing the wheel or anything. And you can argue about the severity, the magnitude, but Hearst was pretty responsible for us uh, getting in the Spanish-American War. Remember the Maine, right? So these are things, these are motifs that have been happening for a long time. And um, I that that was I, I one of my favorite parts of the movie was to see that. And I, it was a nice reprieve from this endless character development of Kane. Um, but... I don't think I don't. I was a little sad. I don't think it really tells us anything beyond this has happened before. Like I didn't think there was any no. like little twist or little nuance that was like, ah, oh, this helps me see the modern day in in a, a brighter light. I think it was just like, oh yeah, this stuff's been going on for a while. Yeah, it's it's more depressing if anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I'm kind of with Taylor. I think the the failing of a lot of modern debate is that people assume that something happening in the modern day is incredibly new and sometimes it is but you know if, if it's like spreading fake news about your opponent like you only think that's new if you've never read about any political body in the history of the world like people have always been you know saying like you know here's something about my opponent that's like not very flattering and it may or may not be true it kind of depends who wins how it goes down in history like all we have to know about a lot of those things is what people wrote down at the time. And we have no guarantee that what people wrote down was true. And most of the people that were writing at the time didn't know the people involved. Yeah. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's a difficult issue. I was, I was kind of hoping that there would, that seeing it in a historical lens would give me like a little more insight into modern times. So I was really looking for that, but I didn't, I didn't get any, maybe you guys got something else out of it, but I didn't get anything more than that. I, I tend to agree with you, Taylor. I think I tend to think um, that uh, when I was watching the movie, I was like, "Yep, okay, yeah, this has happened before." Yeah, yeah. I think what I think it was just kind of striking to me, like the the level of the similarities that came out of it. Like, I mean, so much so that I could write that kind of piece of like, "Hey, look, this is almost a one to one, right?" But again, to your point, I think that might have backfired and just proven that I'm not as well read. But <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I mean, think it. but Hearst did run for election right i think i I don't know if he ever won actually um i think he might have but anyway that was literally what was happening and that was i mean the backstory to this movie outside of its impact in film is fascinating like hearst was so furious especially about the portrayal of his mistress that he ordered all of his papers not to run anything about it it they tried to pressure the move the the uh, studio to not do it. They tried to bribe the head of the studio, tons of money. And there's a whole lawsuit, all kinds of stuff. So 
all of that it just unfortunately just seems like yeah that stuff happens today too that same kind of political pressure that same sort of shenanigans the the way the sausage gets made that average people like the three of us probably wouldn't find uh, agreeable yeah um, okay, and then also another thing I want to bring up, and I know this is, you know, maybe every time we go back to an older movie, I don't know if we want to bring up this conversation again, but I think that this movie had a relatively nuanced approach to the female characters, but maybe I'm wrong in this. I think the first wife was written to be, like, incredibly intelligent. She was very self-aware. I think she was kind of this character that was in a marriage of status, right? Like she was the, the niece, kind of this like almost Kennedy-ish like family relationship of her marrying up to this rich mogul. It made sense and she was very well spoken for herself and she like her motives were very clear and she, you know, she stuck up for herself at the breakfast table every morning and I really liked her, but like, God damn, it stuck out to me so how incredibly stupid Susan Alexander was written. And I, I don't know if this is a product of the time or if it was just, they were ahead of their time in, in being good at being able to write stupidity. But the quote <laughs> that I wrote down from her is, well, gee, Mr. Kane, I'm mighty ignorant, but I guess you've done caught on to that by now. He, 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 he. It's so cringeworthy when you're watching it. But again, I, I think she, you know, it's it's just a well-written character, if anything, but I'm curious you guys take on, on this movie's approach to female characters. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You know, I, I go into a lot of these older films expecting their approaches to, to sex and race to be kind of lacking in a modern context, sure. you know, like expecting them to be like something that I'm cringing away from. Um, and I, I, I won't say that there wasn't any element of that, you know, like there were definitely moments in the movie where it's like, ooh, I wouldn't say that to someone. Sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, the female characters... For the most part, I thought they were well handled, certainly more well handled than in Porco Rosso, which yeah. we reviewed a couple weeks ago. You know, there were women shown like running their own business. Ostensibly, Susan Alexander was running her own nightclub uh, in the, the modern portions of the film. Um, and even with those lines like her saying, like, oh, I'm so ignorant, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, she still kind of came out on top in the end you know like she kind of got out of there she got you know she was able to set herself up for her own successes running her nightclub in the modern day and even with her being shown like at the bottom of the bottle you know like when the interviews were happening throughout the film she was still clearly like her own character like she didn't pass yeah. uh the, the yeah. test of two the women talking together not about yeah the bechdel test she didn't ta pass the bechdel test but still for the time, yep. she had done her own thing. She'd lived her own life. She was clearly a figure in the community around her. And I think the, the film's ability to communicate that was uh, was actually somewhat impressive. Because, as I said before, it's from an era where I, I tend to expect women being, you know, damsels in distress, in distress at best. Yeah, and we we had female writers um, at the various newspapers. Well, and I think some she, was, she was like managing editor. She seemed like she had almost like a position of, of like being higher up at the Inquirer. Yeah, and then there was a lady who was you know headed up the social column. You know, but no, I, I thought it, I thought it did a fine job. I, I had no problems with it. Um, you know, there was a scene where um, where he slaps his second wife, and mm -hmm. that's actually a really interesting scene because. There's a moment earlier, I, I think it's when they're camping um, in the in the uh, swamp down in Florida. And um, there's a she maybe it's like a heartbeat before he actually slaps her. She says something that 
you know, we think, oh, he's going to hit her now, right? And then he doesn't. And they actually put a lot of tension around him hitting her about whether he wants to do that or not. And then he does. And then she says, don't say you're sorry for that. And so there, there, there actually was some some complexity there. Um, and I did, I did read something that kind of adds a little wrinkle to this. So that second wife, uh, <laughs> Wells said that the way he portrayed her was a dirty trick to try to piss <laughs> Hearst off. So he purposefully was trying to make her seem dumb and stupid as a way to piss Hearst off. Now, I don't know if the woman that that character was based off of was actually like that or whatnot, but I think so. I think even he was aware that this was a very unflattering portrayal of this woman, and that was by design for things that you know, if you didn't know about all the context with her, so you wouldn't you wouldn't see why that happened or why it was important. Well, to that point, I think so. The rumor is that is that Hearst's I think it was Hearst's mistress was like the rosebud connection. Is that that is what he asked her to call him? That was like his pet name or her pet name for him. And so he did that to just get under his skin. And so that every time you know he watched the movie, he would be constantly reminded that this is like the binding force of the movie is, is the word Rosebud. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, I guess to bring it back to your point, I agree that like these things, if you, if you go back to movies at the time, like, you know, slapping a woman, I mean, maybe it's portrayed in a negative light, but it's seen as things that were like potentially societally okay at the time. But it's, they, they do make this huge effort to say like, this is part of his breaking point. And, you know, it's right. It's the catalyst for her leaving you know, maybe it's camping in Florida. I don't think anyone on earth ever wants to do that, but you know, probably <laughs> it's getting, I don't want to make light of that. It's probably the relationship deteriorating. And I, I think like his behavior towards her is, is, is painted in the, in the, in a pretty bad light. So well, and then I, she, agree. I was surprised. Well, then she leaves, she leaves right after yep. he hits her because he hit her. And then, uh, they have this whole exchange, um, where I forget exactly what, what she says, but she's saying that he hasn't let her do anything she wants to do, but she can leave. She can do that all on her own. And mm-hmm. I don't think they were, I don't think they were really trying to do any, cause remember the movie's not about her, right? It's about him. So I don't think they were trying to say any like societal thing there about women's rights or anything, but you know, it's just, it's, it, it added complexity. These are real human beings and real characters and made the characters better. And you know, Porco Rosso didn't really do that, which is why it's yeah. so frustrating that, that's, I think that's why we had to talk about it, because it was just so overwhelming and apparent in Porco Rosso when it didn't have any justification for any of it. And I think that Citizen Kane does a much, much better job talking about that while still being historically accurate, you know? Especially yeah, and, and produced okay. 50 years earlier. Exactly. It was made in 1996. It had, was it 55 years to, to get it right? It had all these examples. If a movie made in 41 can have these kinds of positions, it's, it's not difficult for... But enough harping on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's interesting to bring up because, you know, you would think that there are plenty of movies in the time period where the societal norms are are so disorienting that you got to comment on them, like with Porco Rosso. But I think that's part of the staying power of Citizen Kane is that Mm -hmm. I I came into this being critical of Citizen Kane. I feel like all I've done is talk about how the things it does right. (laughs) But. But uh, yeah, no, I, I don't I don't think maybe I maybe I missed something in, in the film. I, like I said, I was a little bored, but I don't think there's anything that, you know, would offend modern sensibilities or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to feel the same way. I don't think there's anything that would offend modern sensibilities. I don't think there's anything in the movie that makes it like objectively of poor quality or anything. It's just you got to be interested kind of in the genre 
yeah to like it yeah and and that wasn't the case for yeah, me but for sure even though i wasn't interested in the genre well anything else i saw the movie and i i loved it well, i didn't love it but i i loved the production of it you know it's it spoke to me it was compelling i just wasn't that interested yeah mm. yeah I, I think i'm in the same boat that i i would recommend people watch it because it has it is such an important artifact of film and you know if you really want to understand orson welles you know, this is this is the way to do it. This is this is a pretty good insight into what this dude was like. Not that we can ever understand anyone, as the whole movie's about. You can't understand people, but you know, I think this is something you got to watch, even if you're not into really character-heavy stories. But if you are, I think you might really like it. I think you, might, I think it it'll creep on to people's you know greatest movies I've ever seen, buoyed by the fact that it's it's such an important movie. But it's not it's not a bad character story. It's a, it's an interesting guy. Yeah, definitely. So, any closing thoughts before we talk about what we're uh, we're going to be reviewing next week? Um, I'll, I mean, I'll wrap with the fact that I I love this movie. I was incredibly pleasantly surprised with how much I liked it. Coming, excuse me, coming at it with a modern eye, I think I typically have uh, low attention span, which might be problematic <laughs> of our age group. But I think it's pretty easy for me to watch these older movies and and get pretty bored and and kind of want to squirm around and, and reach for my phone. And I. Can be honest, I really didn't have much temptation when I was doing or when I was watching through this at all. It's you know, by modern standards, two hours can feel like a little bit of a long movie. I think sometimes we look for stuff that's that's ninety minutes if you want something that's easily digestible. But at two hours in an 80, 80 year old movie, it really did not have that kind of of that drag that I expected out of it. So I think it's a movie that's really really easy to go back as a modern audience and approach. And I think it's really important if. You know, again, we, we approached this at the beginning, but I think if you're going to consider yourself a, a cinephile, I think this is a really good place to jump in and, and start exploring some things that really laid the groundwork for a lot of what we know as modern cinema. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. Yeah, I, I think I I have to kind of second that. I think that as a modern audience, really easy to go back. I don't feel like any of my time spent watching the movie was wasted at all. Um, though the movie wasn't necessarily to my like genre preferences, I won't pretend that I was like that invested in it for reasons of being like interested in it as just something to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even though that was the case, I can't deny that it was a fantastic movie. It was compelling. Like I wasn't that interested, and I still didn't pick up my phone the whole time. Um, so, you know, wouldn't recommend to like my my horror like you know diehards but if anyone is even moderately interested in film watch it yeah and i i would i almost wish i I purposefully didn't want to read any reviews or anything before i watched it because i wanted to be able to say i took i looked at it with a a fresh face and i kind of wish i hadn't because knowing you know reading these people that really admire this movie and thinks it's such a good achievement reading what they thought and what they picked up on it and getting to watch that again, I think I would have had a better time. I think I would have appreciated it more um, if I had known some of that stuff. So I, I still liked it. I, I I will admit I was drawn to look at my phone one time and then I thought, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm getting paid to watch this movie. This is the I, I owe it to the people. Just like Kane, I'm a man of the people. I'm going to watch this movie because I recommended it. So I got to do it. And uh, I watched the whole thing. And um, I'm glad I recommended it. It was it was a little little long for me in some points, but not anywhere as bad as I was thinking it might be. Like you, like what you said, Keegan. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're interested in film at all, it's definitely something you got to watch. 
gentlemen, uh, reviews, if you had to give it a, a rating structure that's in-universe, what would you give this? I would give it probably 12 Florida pa- palaces out of 14. <laughs> <laughs> I would give it 10 golden toilets out of 11, which, by the way, if you go to the Hearst Castle that uh, Xanadu is based off of, they have literal gold toilets. And I don't mean, like, flecked. I mean, like, actual toilets oh, made of actual gold. Yeah. Wow. That is that is insane. I Personally, I would give this 9.5 surprisingly modern split diopter shots out of 10. <laughs> seriously so many times where i was like are they doing this do they have split diopter lenses in 1941 are you kidding me right now yeah i mean it's it's not a surprise that i love this movie to anyone so we we uh we're trying to before in the pre-show we were trying to think about how to describe this movie as uh using the term that hank has really popularized when when uh hank said what, what was it what was the original you said hank Torture porn. Torture (laughs) (laughs) porn. So this, I kind of put it in the Great Gatsby where it's this sort of like intellectual porn. That's not the right word. We were trying to think of the right word, but a word for something that everybody says you got to watch it or you got to read it like the Great Gatsby. Everybody says you got to do it because it's so important and you do it and it's like, okay, well, I'm glad I did it. But I, I, I think I'm going to go with intellectual porn, but that, that doesn't feel quite right to me. There, there's some sort of self-congratulatoriness about it, you know, that, that, oh, I get to say that I watched it as in Canaan. I know about Rosebud and all that stuff. So that's we're going to try to incorporate more of these, uh, you know, X-porn things because it really, really – it really was good for our audience. Our audience it's really we had a lot of positive feedback about that. They liked hearing that. They, they thought Hank used it well to describe something. It was educational. So we're going to try to use that more going forward, even though this Are wasn't looking, a good example of it. I think we're we looking for intellectually masturbatory porn. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that. Do we want to go back and do you want to retroactively do the ones we missed? We have, what was it, Porco Rosso and White Tiger. Hmm... Well, I did this. Uh, what do you think, Hank? So I think Porco Rosso is probably flying porn. It's got a lot of <laughs> um, and I think Keegan said White Tiger best. It's, it, it's eat the rich porn. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. We're going with that. I like those. Cool. So what are we watching next week, Keegan? What kind of porn is it? Oh, well, we're, we're unfortunately, you know, Hank talked a lot about being a big genre fan this week. We are back to torture porn a little bit. Maybe that's a spoiler. Um, but we are going to be watching a new release. I think it's, we're calling them Away Weeks, A Weeks, whatever they are. Uh, it's a modern release. Uh, it's a not so modern release, though. It's the A24 movie, Same Mod. Originally, it was made in uh, 2019. This kind of got caught up in release debacle. I, I remember back before the pandemic started, I would see trailers for this in theaters, and I was really excited to watch it. And it's just kind of consistently been bouncing around. It's interesting to read. I think this was at Sundance 2019 and is still doing press runs. Uh, the director is, is doing stuff with like vanity and giving interviews currently. So very interesting the effect that this has had um, or I, the effect that COVID has had on this movie. Um, just to read the IMD blurb. IMDb blurb. Uh, Say Mod follows a pious nurse who becomes dangerously dangerous. Oh, my God. Saint Maud follows a pious nurse who becomes dangerously obsessed with saving the soul of her dying patient. Written directed by Rose Glass. This is uh, it's a 
a is it Welsh? I believe it's a Welsh movie. Very, very interesting. I actually watched it last week on accident, not knowing we were going to do it for release. Uh, but I'll save my thoughts for next week. Um, and it's coming out on February 12th. So I would recommend everyone check that out if you want to know what we're talking about next week. Yeah, I think that'll be an exciting episode. I, from what I gather, Keegan and I have some opposing opinions on the production company A24. So Ooh. that should make for some uh, some good tea, you know? <laughs> some spicy tea. I thought they were a distribution company, right? I think they just picked they, they are up. distribution. I, okay, I misspoke, okay. but gotcha. Okay, save it, cool. save it for next week. You guys can argue <laughs> next week. Battle it out. So, Hank, do you want to send people to your uh, yeah, your SoundCloud? Yeah. So for the SoundCloud, if you're listening on Apple, uh, click the link below. If you're listening on RSS, click the link below. If you're listening on Spotify, go to the RSS feed. I think. <laughs> And no matter, no matter where you're listening, please make sure to give us a five-star review. It really, really helps us. And make sure to download the podcast. For some reason, that helps us. And write a great review. If you want to write like a, a bad review or give us one star, you don't need to do that. Don't worry about it. You've already done your part by listening. Only, <laughs> only if you want to do a good one. That's all we're asking for here. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. Well, this was good. If, if you guys want to find any more of my work, you can find me on my, my personal blog, which I haven't written on in a, in a little bit of time, but filmtrend.blogspot.com. Any closing words? Taylor, you want to point people to any of your stuff? No, like I said last week, man, this is where I'm at. This is it. This is my entire <laughs> internet presence is this amazing podcast. There's no other place to find me. Well, I, this is the fourth episode. That makes one full month of recording. Feels good, guys. We've done two two homes, two two aways. This is pretty. I think six episodes will feel very full by the time that we get through a Hank recommendation. But yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking for a Hank week, man. A Hank week's gonna be good. Oh, Hank week is gonna change you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, because Saban would have been a Hank week, so I don't know. It's it's gonna be a if you don't like horror, it's gonna be a dark two weeks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Hank is gonna show us some things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks everybody.